Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to Island Conversations. Remember, these Island Conversation interviews air on Sundays on KWXX and B93, B97, and are then repeated the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. Today we're talking food and with who better than Peter Merriman. Peter Merriman is a chef, restaurateur, and one of the original 12 founding chefs of Hawaii Regional Cuisine. In 2011, he and the other Hawaii Regional Cuisine chefs were inducted into the Hawaii Restaurant Association Hall of Fame. He was born in Pittsburgh, and his mom was a food writer for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, his first exposure to creative cuisine. Peter went to University of Pennsylvania to play football and study political science. He enrolled in a chef's apprentice program with Rock Resorts and cooked throughout the United States and Europe. In 1983, he came to the Mount Alani Bay Hotel, and here he is, still in Hawaii. Today, Peter Merriman has five location signature restaurants, the flagship being Merriman's here in Waimea. In September 2018, Peter Merriman was named Hawaii's Restaurateur of the Year at the 35th Annual Hale Aina Awards. Good morning. Aloha, Peter. Good morning, Sherry. Thank you for having me. So, Hawaii Regional Cuisine, what is it? Yeah, so what is Hawaii Regional Cuisine? That's a great question. Um, originally, I think it started off back in the late 80s when a few chefs, uh, myself included amongst them, wanted to do something more than the typical cuisine that was being served to the tourists that were coming to Hawaii at that time. So my approach to Hawaii Regional Cuisine was to go out and source locally and find local food that could be served to the guests. But I, I went a step further in the original, my original version of Hawaii Regional Cuisine. We did interpretations of local food. Like whether, you know, we would do things like a, a beef broccoli, but we'd do, you know, a, a sophisticated version of a beef broccoli. And we were talking earlier about paddling canoe. And I got a lot of my inspiration, honestly, from paddling for the Kauai High Canoe Club. And then on Saturdays after the regatta, we'd have the potluck and um, just looking at all the different dishes that everybody bought. And that gave me a lot of inspiration of, for cuisine to be a reflection of the culture is a really important thing. And that was kind of my input for knowledge when I was new to the islands. So you say what you were offering was different from what was being served to the tourists before. What were they getting before? Well, before it was continental cuisine. And you, you can't really blame the folks that were cooking in those days. If you go to the Mauna Kea Beach Hotel to this day, there's giant freezers. And if you think about it, they used to have to bring in frozen goods on barges and jam them in, into those freezers. And, that, and they had to survive in that fashion. Also, agriculture changed. And I was fortunate to arrive right in the middle of that change. So every Everything was being grown for export, whether it was sugar, pineapple, cattle. Everything was intended to be exported. And sugar had all, was mostly gone on the Big Island. We still had hamakua sugar, I think, at that time. Um, but kohala sugar was gone. Puna sugar was going to go out soon. And so there was land becoming available for new age farmers, people who hadn't been farmers before. And that was, um, that was a critical part 
in my being able to develop my style of Hawaii regional cuisine because I could get young farmers to grow products that I needed. And it wasn't just sugar cane trying to grow, you know, make a cuisine out of sugar cane. So it was possible to get locally grown items. Well, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, I grew up in the Bay Area, and mm-hmm. I do remember when Alice Waters started Chez Panisse, and that was a big deal because she was focusing also on trying to use local foods from local providers. So that was beginning to be a thing. Yeah, it's funny how things kind of go and come back. I mean, because originally, even before these, uh, you know, the interstate highway system and so forth and airplanes, everything had to be locally sourced, right? And then I think in the after in the post World War II era in, in North America, especially, people were learning about convenience and they're learning about frozen food and they're learning and and so and things could be flown and transported and so it almost became cool not to do locally sourced food for a little while there and kind of beer was sort of the same way right i mean it it used to be it was just little local breweries all over the country then budweiser and a few others came and dominated now we're back to craft beers again that are locally produced so that's so funny you mentioned that because i remember when i was in college the big deal was coors beer people got all excited when they could buy coors beer and i was in college in california right and you know because it had to be transported refrigerated (laughs) but you know the interesting thing about food in hawaii and this is true all over the world really in hawaii it's especially true it's a a number of forces that have to come together there's there, there has to be the the um the supply side that we were just talking about the farmers that actually grow the products and then there has to be an interesting a social aspect to the food so that you reflect the culture that you're that to. But also on the other side of it, you need an enlightened consumer, if you will, people who want to pay for better quality experiences. And those were all sort of coming together at that time. How did the farmers respond when you said, gee, I'd like to use local products, I'd like to use local produce and you know what you catch and, and what you're growing? Tell us more about that. Well, the farmers were fantastic. I think it's been one of the great blessings of my life to be able to work so closely with farmers, and especially the farmers here on the Big Island. I often say uh, I've never met a farmer I didn't like. And I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that to be a successful farmer, you need to be hardworking, pretty smart, and very humble. And uh, those are really good qualities in lots of people. And the farmers were super receptive here. People like Teen Data and Richard Ha, just they were so helpful to me early on. I never would have succeeded without those people. And so it's been a, a real blessing. I think it's one of the most important parts of my whole life. Well, you know, I was listening a couple weeks ago to the NPR show Splendid Table with Francis Lamb, and they were talking about the concept of using local vegetables that in the old days, vegetables were grown for durability transportability and sort of size and shape because you could pack more of a certain size and shape into a box. And then when regional cuisine became more well-known, the concept was you grow the vegetables. They might not be that pretty, but you grow them for flavor and for what the chef needs. And did you ask our local farmers to start growing things that you wanted and sort of change the way maybe they had been doing things? Absolutely. We asked farmers 
often. <laughs> and we did it in a variety of ways. I mean, in the very early days in the, in the mid-80s when I was at the uh, Manalani, at the, at the gallery restaurant, uh, we would actually run ads in the newspaper saying, if you have something that you're growing and you want to sell it, bring it by because we want to use local. And that was really super fun because you know Hawaii, right? So next thing you know, people are showing up with boxes full. I got a star fruit tree in my backyard. You know, in fact, I don't even want any money for this. You can just have this star fruit. Just get it out of my house. <laughs> it was great, you know. But then also, like with Tane Dada, we worked with him closely and I would um, indicate he would bring me seed catalogs. It's all before computers, right? So he would bring me seed catalogs, and I would highlight any item that I thought I would like to use. And then what he would do is go down into the Kealakekua area and a group of small farmers that lived all over there. He would sort of suggest to different farmers that they grow something that somebody else wasn't growing and was ripe for their particular elevation, etc. And that helped get it um, started. That really primed the pump for uh, locally grown agriculture products. Wow, nice. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I'd like to mention is, like, the people in Hawaii have been – I think that humility part of it is so important. Like I worked with Monty Richards, who just passed away this past year, a great man. And we worked with him for over 30 years buying his lamb. And it was a constant back and forth with Monty. When, when that lamb wasn't right, we would call him up and tell him which qualities of the lamb we didn't like that much. And instead of getting huffy about it, he'd say, okay. And he'd start breeding to try to solve the issue that we were having. And so it, that sort of... Um, back and forth relationship is with so many farmers has worked really well so an interesting question was it breeding or was it what the lambs were eating that created a different flavor that maybe was or was not to your taste yeah that's great great question my my opinion and i'm no expert but that any livestock it's about 60 percent breed and 40 percent feed Right, so it both both are important. If you don't have the right breed, you probably can't overcome it with your feed, right? But if you have the right breed and are feeding it incorrectly, it, it'll just be good, but not as good as it could possibly be. You mentioned people willing to pay more for better quality, different foods, and I a question that always comes up is why are oftentimes local products more expensive than those imported from the mainland when one would think they're grown right here, they should not be more expensive? I guess the short answer would be the cost of shipping is really low. And the cost of shipping is a very small input into the price of food. But I will say that everybody that's from Hawaii and has lived in Hawaii a long time can see the, the challenges we're having with fresh fish. And fish is a good example. Um, because the, the cost of it's just getting so expensive. And, and that doesn't mean that your local supermarket is uh, charging a really high margin. What it means is that everybody that's buying fish in Hawaii, being restaurants and, and supermarkets, is competing on a world market now. Today, the fish that comes into the block at Honolulu can be sold anywhere in the world. You've got FedEx to deliver it. You've got cell phones and computers to find it, buyers and sellers. And it's so easy. Whereas, like, if you remember back in the, say, the 90s, the 80s and the 90s in Hawaii, when there was a, a run on Ono or a run on Mahi Mahi, the price would go through the floor. We'd be paying under a dollar for that stuff. And it never happens anymore. And the reason for that, one of the big reasons, is because of this world market. We're competing against buyers in Tokyo and Chicago and everywhere else. 
That is so interesting because I have noticed that the price of fish does not seem to dip like it used to. And you could grab those. Oh, yeah, we're going to have Ono tonight. And now now I know why. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just the realities of the, of the modern world. There's so many things like that that are changing that people need to understand. It's not just food, but all kinds of other products as well. And, you know, and to take that a little step further, another um, angle on that same issue is that one of the things we do in our restaurants is that we buy day boat fish. So we're not going with any long liners, right? So the boat leaves the dock, go out, catches fish, and comes back. And we have it the next day or two days later. Whereas a long line boat still has fresh fish, but it might have been out for weeks, actually, even though the fish is held in like a 29-degree slurry. So it's technically not frozen, but it might be two weeks old by the time you're getting it. And so we, we, what I tell all my chefs is don't call your fish purveyor in the morning, ask what's cheapest, call them up and ask for what's best. And so we pay more actually for our fish than consumers do and I, I, than they, consumers do in the supermarket. And that's really hard for customers to understand, but we have a better quality. We get the very best of the market and we pay for that quality. So do you and other chefs get your inspiration on what to serve that day from what is available that day? Or do you plan in advance what you think you want to serve for the next week or whatever? We do it both ways. Um, most successful for me is not to have a different special every single day. And people say, oh, well, that's not creative. But actually, I think it's better for the guest because a dish that I've cooked five days in a row, I'm going to be better at than a dish that I'm dreaming up every single day. So we get our inspiration in various places, but definitely what's available on the market. But that tends to be a little bit more seasonal, so you don't have to do it per day so much. You might have a switch on one particular day. You have multiple restaurants. You can't possibly be cooking in every single one. How do you manage that? Yeah, that's a really fun part of my job is that it's, I, I um, relate it to like what, what it might be like to be a musician and trying to manage musicians because the chefs are all talented and they all have opinions and they all have styles that they want to play. But I want everybody to you know keep in tune with me <laughs> and keep the rhythm that I got. So it's a back and forth. Um, we have a really great corporate chef that uh, I work very closely with. Um, his name's Neil Murphy, and I work with him most every single day. And then he he goes and works with each chef in each restaurant. But then we have parameters that that chef needs to work within. He the he or she the chef in each restaurant has some leeway. But then there's there's parameters like we only use fresh food. We only use day boat fish. You know, we don't use more than so many different flavor types on a particular plate that we'll put together. And that's how we do it. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm your host, Sherry Bracken. Today, we're talking with famed chef Peter Merriman, whose Hawaii career began right here on this island. Next week, we'll be talking with Hawaii County Prosecutor Mitch Roth about some of the initiatives he's undertaking with the Hawaii County Prosecutor's Office. Remember that you may listen to Island Conversations every Sunday morning on KWXX and on B97B93, and the programs repeat the following Friday at KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. And you may listen anytime or download the podcast and subscribe to the podcast at kwxx.com. Before we get back to Peter Merriman, let's hear from our great sponsor. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. 
The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. Now let's get back to our conversation with Chef Peter Merriman. I understand that your mom was a food writer in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, and she was your first sort of entree into the world of cooking, and that your first job was with the H.J. Heinz Company. Now, I have never thought of a ketchup company as being a real gourmet food place, so tell us about that. Yeah, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, and H- that's the head- headquarters for H.J. Heinz. And so there was a, they had a chef for H.J. Heinz, and his name was Ferdinand Metz. And Ferdinand Metz went on to be the founder of the American Culinary Federation and head of the Culinary Institute of America. But what he did was he taught a cooking class at night, and so he needed a gopher, basically. And that's what I did. I was his little gopher, and that was my entree into the world of chefs. What was your path to Hawaii Island? My path to Hawaii Island, well, I had done a chef's apprenticeship that was done mostly in Vermont and Wyoming. Then I'd gone off. I'd worked in New York City, Frankfurt, Germany, Washington, D.C. And then I didn't like my job in D.C. And it was, it was, it was December of uh, the end of December in 1982. And I quit my job and I came home and I was unemployed. And within 15 minutes, the uh, phone rang in the apartment. I was staying with my sister. And it was uh, Hans-Peter Hager of Edelweiss fame. He was the chef at that time at Manalani, and he was opening the Manalani Bay Hotel and needed cooks. So a week later, I was living on the beach at Spencer Park. (laughs) How did you know him? Or how Um, did he know you, more importantly? Well, because in the early 80s, there were much less resort hotels around. And so the cooks who worked in resort hotels they sort of we were sort of a a group of people that rotated around the country and we we didn't necessarily know each other but we knew of each other and so forth and when when a new place would open or if a chef needed a a skilled chef or cook he would just put the word out and somebody would say oh you know there's this guy named peter merriman in dc and and he could do this job for you so he called me out of the blue yeah and he's unemployed right now so let's give him a chance yeah right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so you talked about hawaii regional cuisine so what inspired you and these other chefs to get together and actually do this how did that really come about so the inspiration for hawaii regional cuisine really came from more of a social situation so there was like um Roy Yamaguchi and uh, Jean-Marie Jochelin and a few other young chefs who had places in the, I think this was like the late 80s, early 90s. In those days, it was popular to have a guest chef at your restaurant. So I'd often get invited to maybe cook at Roy's restaurant as a guest chef. And so I'd go over there. And this is typical for any chef visiting any restaurant. And, you know, you work your butt off all day getting ready for the dinner and then you work really hard for dinner and then you hop plane back home or you go out and have a beer and and go home the next morning and there was no real chance for social interaction and traditionally um, like the american culinary federation came from the cities where cooks would have clubs where they met between split shifts 
right? And since we were on islands, we didn't have that opportunity. And I really wanted to create an opportunity for the different chefs who were into this new dynamic of this new style of food to get together just in a social situation. So, you know, it was actually Roger Daikon. Uh, he and I did a, um, an event in Miami. And um, on the way back from the Miami, we talked about it. And um, I sent out invites to all the guys. And everybody said said yes. And we went. Roger was the chef at that time at the Maui Prince. So we got cheap rooms. And that's, that's how it all started. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, it was. So employees. I know that we have cooking schools or cooking classes at Palamanui Community College, Hawaii Community College, Kapiolani Community College. Are the chefs that are coming out of there, are they the people who go to work in the local restaurants? Do they have the skill and talent? And if, you know, like, where do you find folks and how do our local students fit into your scheme? Yeah, so the whole thing about being successful in a kitchen is attitude. It's not experience and it's not knowledge. So um, we, we hire lots of young people coming out of the culinary institute, culinary colleges here in Hawaii. Some succeed and some don't. And, but it's really based on attitude. If they, if they want to work hard and get ahead, they can. There's real opportunity inside kitchens. The most important thing for the young people coming out of those schools to learn is they're not chefs, they're cooks but to take pride in being a cook. Everybody thinks they, there's some reason to not be proud of being a cook. I often tell people, I'm a cook. My position happens to be chef, but my skill is cook. What's the difference between chef and cook? Chef is chief. So he's, he's the boss of the kitchen. That's all he or she is. And to me, cook is the artisan. That's the one that knows how to handle the food and practices and gets it so tight. And that's really who we appreciate in the long run is it's uh, Leonardo da Vinci, not his boss, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about the past. Where do you see Hawaii going food-wise, agriculture-wise? And I guess I'd have to relate it to tourism because a lot of people come here and want to eat the local foods. Where do you see all that going in the next 10 years? It's really hard to predict where it's going to go, but I think that on the whole food will continue to at the same time become more simple and higher quality i think as the um dining public the guests the tourists that you refer to and the, the people that live here as they become more discerning and appreciate quality more and more then that's that's what they're going to demand is really high quality food but not in a fussy presentation because a lot of food can become fussy and get in the way of the actual flavor of the dish you're trying to serve. You recently celebrated 30 years and you had an event in Waimea and you, well, first of all, you do philanthropic things. You do scholarships and things like that. I read on your website and you've been a member of the Big Island community, even though you now, I believe, live on Maui, but you came back to Waimea and you did a 30-year celebration and donated $30,000 to local organizations. Tell us about that. Why did you do it? Who did you donate to? Why them? Uh, well, I'm, I'm just, first of all, I am so honored to be in a position where I can donate to charity. I feel really, really fortunate. And I often tell the story that I, when I showed up in Hawaii in 1983, I had $75 in one bag. And so Hawaii has been very, very good to me. And if I can do a little bit to give back to Hawaii, then 
the three groups that I picked were all close to my heart because they're all Big Island centric organizations. They're in fact they're not only centric; they're only Big Island. You know, the North Hawaii Community Hospital is just doing fantastic things up there. We also did Hope Services. They're, they're dealing with homeless people, and, and it's just that's an issue we all have to feel impacted by, and just sad for what's going on and and today. And, and the last one was the Big Island Giving Tree, and they focus on a group that's overlooked and you got to feel really bad for, which is the working poor, families who are working but still can't make ends meet. And I just think those are really important things to remember our brothers and sisters that are living on the island with us. Well, you also honored some of the farmers, and I'd have to say the farmers honored you at that event because they were kind of excited. Richard Hall, most especially, huh? Yeah. Well, and like I said, that, that's been the honor of my lifetime to work with people like Richard Hall. You mean, Richard Hall is just one of the best human beings you can find. In fact, I have te- we're selling them now, but I've made them for myself. I stole Willie Nelson's line, but it says, my heroes have always been farmers. And I'm, I'm dead serious about that. I mean, I honor these people, the, the hard work, the guts it takes to run a farm and to deal with nature and all the different things with how the environment and climate changes and machinery you have to do so much and work so hard and and lucky us we get to eat the product of their labor well farming is a lot more complicated too because of federal regulations and local regulations just the monitoring the record keeping and just paying attention to things and i've sort of been amazed when farmers like richard haw have told me what they have to do yeah, it's really kind of interesting. I get torn, you know, we're really into food safety and so forth. But you think that, you know, people have been growing crops and selling them to each other for about 10,000 years and since Mesopotamia or someplace. And, and now we get government regulations that say we can't reuse the boxes that they're delivered in. And, and we used to have such a good cycle going where farmers would just use the same case over and over again. We're not allowed to do that. So there's a lot of regulations that they have to go. I mean, I understand it. We have to, it's a crowded world. We have to really be careful and cautious of not making some people sick. Um, but at the same time, wow, it's hard for the farmer. They bear the brunt. Well, particularly when recycling is a good thing to do, one would think. And if you can't reuse the boxes, I didn't know that. That's kind of a drag. Yeah, it's really a shame, isn't it? Yeah. It, but it's just the way it is, you know. And and then the other thing is, is the poor Hawaii farmer has all these regulations, but yet has this low-cost competitor who is big, giant mainland farms, Right, so they're they're really caught in a squeeze. They can't go too high on their pricing, or else people are going to switch away from buying their local product to the less expensive stuff from the mainland. Peter Merriman, what are your favorite things to cook and to eat? <laughs> My favorite things to eat—that's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what my favorite things to eat. You know, I love. The standards like a really good cheeseburger or pepperoni pizza. <laughs> Those are fantastic. Also, like, like pâtés. But my favorite cooking things are actually braised items. You know, Escoffier said that uh, um, a saucier, the sauce cook, is taught, but a rotissier, the ro- roast cook, is born. And when you braise an item, it takes hours and hours. Braising is cooking a large chunk of meat usually. It can be vegetables, but it's usually meat in a small amount of liquid. You can think uh, beef stew can sort of be like a, a braised item, depending on how you do it and so forth. But the, the 
the um, operative words here are long braise, right? So you've got to spend a long time, low heat, and you're basting items and stirring, and, it's, and you're adjusting it as you go. So it's just like, it's this love affair that goes on for three hours, and then you end up with beef bourguignon. <laughs> and then you eat it in about 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> and it's gone. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing about art. Food is art. Because our art is consumable. I mean, we can still look at Leonardo da Vinci's paintings 400 years later, but our art as chefs has gone in about 20 minutes. But it's remembered. Well, that's a really important part, isn't it? Like, if, if you can have food memories are so important. We were just talking about it last night and getting ready for Easter and how over the years we've put a lot of effort into doing really great holiday meals and now 30 years into it people have memories from having come over the third maybe they started joined us 15 years ago or 10 years ago but they have memories of the place so that's really special when you can create a memory for people like that for me my memories of easter are always around lamb we we seldom ate lamb when i was a child growing up in pittsburgh but when we did it was probably easter and then uh, merriman's and waimea we've developed this uh 30-year relationship with the lamb from Kahua Ranch. What's the future for Peter Merriman and your work? I'm not sure exactly what the future is. Probably we might expand the Monkey Pie Kitchens to the mainland. That's one of our considerations at this time. We want to keep doing charity work. Charity work is really important to us. We're not decided exactly. The We've done a lot with Hawaii Islands Land Trust. I'm, I'm an advisory member of the Hawaii Islands Land Trust. we set land aside it's a really important cause for me but i am concerned with um some of the other issues that are going on in hawaii and i want to know if i can help in some way and that, that mostly people issues poverty and homelessness those sorts of things peter merriman what would you like to say in closing oh thank you big island so much it's been a great ride aloha <laughs> <laughs> my guest today has been chef peter merriman Thank you so much, Peter, for being with us. This is great. Thanks, Sherry. It's really been fun. I enjoyed it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for being with us for Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken and for joining me here at my new home on the KWXX family of stations. I'll see you next Sunday morning for a conversation with Hawaii County Prosecutor Mitch Roth. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at KWXX. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.